0: this is episode number 173 with Kevin Kelly of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now, 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 the Founder
1: Podcast, even the greatest entrepreneurs had help.
0: and host of Founder Magazine and also this podcast. Hope you're all having a great evening wherever you are around the world. Morning, good night. Just want to say thank you so much for sharing your earbuds with me. I really appreciate your time, your attention, and I promise you listening to this podcast will help you level up in life and also really help you move towards building and growing the successful business, and the kind of business that you and I both want to build. Now, let's talk about today's guest. His name is Kevin Kelly, and uh, he's quite prolific. Uh, He was one of the early founders of Wired Magazine, which, in fact, is one of my favorite magazines ever. Uh, I reckon their covers are just absolutely incredible. They always do the best covers. Always inspired by Wired Magazine covers and also The New Yorker and Time. They'll be my top three. And you might be able to see where I get some inspiration, working with Koran on this stuff, which is really cool. But uh, So we talk about all sorts of things, magazines, all sorts of things, publishing. And Kevin Kelly is a bit of a futurist as well, where he predicts the future and talks about trends and uh we talked about ai we talked about also he opened up my mind there's a really mind-boggling episode where it really opens up your mind to the technology and the way you know got to think about things moving forward for your business and your startup and how you can stay on the cutting edge um kevin was talking about as well with me he shares about some some really cutting edge stuff that I need to be thinking about, uh, you know, because we produce the magazine and, you know, our core, core business is content. Everything we do is content in some way, shape, or form, whether it's audio, video, book, magazine, you name it. So, really, really interesting stuff. We also talk about his concept, A Thousand True Fans, which is absolutely game changing. Highly, highly recommend you take notes for this one. All right, guys, that's it from me. If you are enjoying these episodes, please do leave us a review, five-star review if you think we're worthy. And then also, please do uh, let your friends know about this. I know you've got founders that are friends you're friends with. I know that you must talk shop with other entrepreneurs just like I love talking shop. It's just a ton of fun uh, because the life of an entrepreneur is sometimes lonely. So please do share this with any of your friends that might get use or value from this one. And also uh, make sure you check out Founder Club. It's our exclusive VIP community. Uh, It's application only. And you can only join if you have an existing business doing over $100,000 a year in turnover. And uh, our goal is to help you get to a million plus to build a seven-figure business. All right, guys. If you are enjoying these episodes, you're going to love this one. <laughs> now, let's jump into the show. Well, uh, the first question that I ask everyone uh, that comes on is, how did you get your job? I'm totally unqualified for my job.
1: I created my own job. Um, if you want to call it that, yeah, I just made it up.
0: <laughs> awesome. And uh, can you tell us more about uh, like, uh, how, how you started doing the work you're doing now today? Like, What got you started?
1: My dad worked for a magazine company in New York City called Time Life. Uh, he brought home magazines every week, every Monday. And I became a magazine junkie very early on. I just loved magazines. And in high school, I kind of made a little zine. We would call it a zine at, the, uh, at this point. with Xerox and uh, cut-up stuff. Although I didn't really ever aim for that professionally. I didn't even take journalism in school or anything. But I, I was interested in photography and I became a photographer in Asia um working for myself without i mean you know giving myself assignments and I started writing to accompany writing captions that got longer and started writing about um my travels and um read a book about how to write magazine articles and then started submitting articles to magazines and had success there and um Eventually uh, started working for a magazine as an editor, and then became publisher, and then you know went on to found a magazine, co-found a magazine, where I was uh, also working as an editor, and continued to write for magazines. So um, in some ways, it's, I haven't gone very far.
0: Why? Why do you say that? You haven't gone very far, like. Uh...
1: Well, I mean, because it's um, you know, I'm a magazine junkie. I'm just you know, starting off and just feeding the, the craving. Uh, you know, I, I still have a magazine mentality. I, I like to package ideas. You know, these days magazines are kind of online, um, and I am actually not a native writer. I don't really like to write. I love to edit. I love to package and conceive of things and that's that's really my joy still
0: coming back um to the piece around how you said you co-founded a magazine can you tell can you share with our audience how, how that got started and how that came about because one thing that we get it found is we're always asked as well how, how do you start a magazine this is like you know this is one of my dreams it's very aspirational
1: well it wasn't the first magazine i started uh, every one of the uh five editors at wired had already started a magazine elsewhere uh the first magazine i started actually i skipped in a part was um when i was doing my writing i started a mail order business selling travel guides and i also started a magazine about walking the first magazine about walking in america and um uh it was a pretty homebrew you know, do-it-yourself, we would call it desktop publishing, though this was in 1982 or something before there was desktop publishing, but that's what I was doing, and um, cut, cutting and pasting stuff up. By the time Wired came around, I had some, you know, experience in the the difficulties of, you know, doing a magazine. And the other co-founders had also, each of them, Done a magazine before, which none of them were very successful. So, the genesis of Wired was one, you know, I had done this other magazine that had gone on to work at the Whole Earth Catalog and I was publishing in that magazine, which I did not start. It had a a fairly modest circulation of, you know, 30 or 40,000 people or subscribers, but it was unique among almost any magazine in America because it was um, completely user subscribed and user financed and user generated. So we didn't take, we didn't have grants and we didn't have advertising. We had only the money from the people who are subscribing. And a lot of the content actually came from the people subscribing. Um, so it was sort of the precursor of a lot of the web because it was user-generated content and user-paid content. And in, the, in that mix of things, as we got more involved in the technology, I actually did a, a special book and a special issue of the magazine called Signal, which was kind of a precursor to Wired in talking about the culture around technology and the convergence of these digital technologies – Louis Rosetto was and Jay were doing something similar in Amsterdam Uh, They had slightly parallel but different vision. They they wanted something very glossy They were the ones who came to me having done a prototype of a glossy magazine that was About the stuff that I had been talking about but with the added Dimension that they wanted to talk about the people who are doing it And so there would be people on the cover instead of ideas on the cover which is what i was doing and um they as i said they did the hard work of paying for a prototype and getting some initial funding um they were looking for an editor so i i uh, volunteered to edit the the magazine while i was trying to finish a book while i was on sabbatical from the magazine that i was editing (laughs) so Uh, I never went back. Um, I I I mean, I never went back to Holworth. I stayed at Wired. You know, there were other people involved in that, um, the designers, John Patel, who went on to do great things, who had done a magazine in school, Mark Freundfelder who had a magazine called Boing Boing. And when later on after Wired did the website Boing Boing, he was involved. Um, so there was, there was, um, we had a lot of experience in doing magazines that didn't work. And so um, we were lucky in that this one worked at a much bigger scale than any of us would have dared um, do before. And the curious thing is, is in many ways, the, I was responsible for you know, the content inside. It was um, a lot of the same stuff that I have been talking about in the other magazine, but suddenly we were doing it in a big spotlight. And we had a huge audience. I was talking, and interviewing the same people. We were writing about the same things that oh, very few people were paying attention to, and now suddenly everybody was paying attention to it. And of course, the um, time, we were lucky in the timing because a few years after we started, maybe, maybe a year and a half after Netscape went public, and that was this that was this um, moment when the web was born, and suddenly people could kind of understand when well, they could see it. So they could see what we were talking about. Cause suddenly it was visual. And, uh, then we were suddenly right in the middle of everything. Um, and that, so if he'd started four years earlier or three years earlier, it wouldn't, we'd been too early. And of course, if we had been four years late, it wouldn't have worked either. It was just, we were just at the right time.
0: Mm. So when, what, what is that time? 92, 93, the, the, uh, went January 93. Yeah. Gotcha. So if someone wanted to get started doing a magazine today, would you recommend it? Um, no. <laughs> what, what, not, what would you Not, not a paper people...
1: magazine. Yeah. The problem, the problem right now with, with publishing is that the business models are all, they all suck. They, 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 they're, they're, no one's figured it out yet. Um, the 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 CPM, the prices for the the units of ads, that what you're getting paid for ads are just dropping and dropping. There's really very little money. You have to have very very high numbers to make the number, which in those high numbers, if you're starting off, are just really impossible to attain. Paper doesn't work it's so expensive not so much to print it but to mail it out get it to people and you know the alternatives of maybe you know you can go back to the old model we had a whole earth that would be the closest which is you know you're you're doing something so valuable that people are willing to pay for it but then you have to have paywalls and it's hard you know the atlantic and a couple other in wire too or you know experimenting with how you share things to get people n- knowing about it, but then they have to pay for more. Um, none of them are very elegant and, um, I think it's really tough. Um, I think it's very tough t- to figure out the economic model. the, the you, here's what I would say. Uh, yeah, you can make a magazine, but I, I don't think you can make a magazine as a way to make money. Um, if you you can make a magazine as a way to have an audience to do other things, but I don't, there's not really a good money making model for a magazine today.
0: Yeah, no, that's uh, really interesting you say that. Um, I, don't, I don't want to talk about us because it's not about me, it's not about us what we're doing, founder. It. It's about you. But uh, our business model, um, how we've able been able to make money with our magazine, is uh, through like you described, using the magazine to generate and build an audience, but then doing something else, but still right, under the exactly. founder brand. Yeah. Right, yeah. If
1: you have conferences or these other things, Yeah, um, as part of an integrated thing, yes, that that, that that can be an element of that, but um, standing
0: alone is just not going to hold it. Mm. So talk to us about why, because this is actually one of my favorite magazines, especially the covers. Like, I love covers, um, and you guys have had some very, very prolific covers, as well. Very iconic, you know. Um, so tell me about that. Like, they're so cool, man. For,
1: first of all, <laughs> I should make it very clear that I don't work on the magazine uh, today yes, yes, as I know, I know. as a as an operating editor. In fact, there's a brand new editor, Nick Thompson, who I really like. A young guy came from New Yorker. dot com. So uh, you know, I give them my advice, which they mostly ignore, as they should. Um, and I do maybe one piece uh, a year for them, which I do at as a at freelance rates, even though I have a title um, at Wired. But while I was there, the way that we would do covers was was we would um, talk about the revolution of the month. Uh, it was like, what's what's the disruption what's the revolution this month and it wasn't like this month because we would be working many months ahead but we would we would work back we would actually do this exercise where we would say what would be the coolest most amazing cover we could have in general like you could say like you know pill that you know so you don't have to sleep whatever we do like makeup up crazy amazing cool covers and then we would work back from that we then we would say well you know well is there any possibility is does this exist can you know what would happen what would we need and very few of those covers would after, actually ever happen because we were just making them up but they would also often lead to something that was cool itself so rather than i mean rather than trying you're know, like well you you know you 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 were all these articles come in and you can say well let's make a cover out of this article because it's in a magazine you would try and actually work it the other way around saying what would make cool cover and let's then assign that article and work backwards from the cover so that was you know and then that's just the concept and then there was you know, the execution of the artwork which is what the designers would do and you know, like anything, there would be concepts and prototypes and blah, blah, blah. But the, the the idea was always to try and in some way start with a cover idea and then try and make that happen rather than try to make a cover out of something you already had.
0: Mm, I see. And what do you think makes a good magazine? What are, What are the key – like if you could boil it down to the key elements –
1: it's a really interesting editor. So, so the best
0: magazines
1: on a you know consistent basis, like on a year-to-year basis, are all extensions of the personality of the chief editor. So, for a long time, Adam Moss at the New York Times Sunday Magazine was running it. It was a really interesting magazine. And then when he left, it wasn't so interesting. David Remnick at the New Yorker, is you know it's fantastic. It's great. He has a you know, he brings a, a breath and an interest and a surprise to it. Um, you know, magazines in the past, you know, Spy magazine while Anderson was running it, um, you know, it's 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 really you know, Rolling Stone and Yon Winter. It's really an extension of the personality of the editor or editors, and so. That's that's my that's what it takes. When Chris Anderson was running Wired, it was it was you know it was pretty good, over or, you know consistently. When Scott was running it, I wasn't as interested. So you have to have a really good. It's like what makes a good film, you know, or you know, a good story and a really good director.
0: Mm. So why did
1: you leave? Oh well, that's a very complicated story i mean it's simple in one way so I, I left because the founders uh, we the founders who own the majority of stock lost control in, in a complicated way and the magazine was sold against our wishes too, uh, right and well it was sold to condi Nast, and nice. of all the people to be sold to it was the by far the best uh outcome because condi Nast did the absolute right thing which is they left it alone they gave a few more resources. They kept it in San Francisco, the only magazine that they have that's not in their office in New York City. And so it, it, it prospered. Um, but I, did, I, you know, as somebody, you know, while we were running, it was absolutely fantastic because we could do whatever we wanted. But, the, you know, I had no intentions of reporting to a billionaire. And, um, so we all laughed uh, when at that very sad day when it was forced. And the other thing was that they broke up the um, the brand uh, when the magazine was sold. And in the online area we had our own search engine. We had the first you know digital properties. Wire.com was sold to something else, and Wire magazine was prevented from owning Wire.com. We couldn't do we couldn't oh. do a digital we couldn't do the digital size. So I was like, man, there's nothing. So
0: yeah, yeah. Wow, that's interesting. So you actually broke up the different entities between Wired.com and Wired, the actual public magazine publication.
1: Right. They, they the Wired magazine could not have Wired.com or or, or an on or digital version, a digital property it was it was prohibited. So for all through the 2000s, that's you know Wired had could not even participate in all this, you know, all this stuff happening. And so it wasn't Chris actually was able to buy back wire.com for almost nothing because it was it had been sold through a whole series of mother entities. And by the time it ended up it was they weren't doing anything with it. It was worth nothing. So for you know pennies on a dollar he bought back um uh, wire.com. And that was just, I don't know, maybe four years ago, five years ago, something very recent.
0: Oh. Okay. That's interesting. And how did that sale come about?
1: I mean, the 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 for sale in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. First in, uh, yeah. Well, well. So, I'm I'm you know I'm simplifying a lot of complicated stuff. But basically, the VCs, um, we had a failed IPO. We we were going to go. They were going to go public. They wanted to cash out at its height. They wanted to go. You know, they were going public, and. Uh, it was just the, right—the very beginning of the tremors of the dot bust. So during the roadshow, you know, very last minute, uh, Goldman Sachs was the lead on the IPO. They misjudged whatever it was, and at the last minute, the IPO failed. Uh, we were already scaling up to high. We, we were scaling up for the you know the, the money coming in. We missed some, a benchmark. VCs took over the board. And they forced a sale while it was hot. And the magazine, got the magazine, which was making money, sold for very little. And the digital side, which had no uh, profits at all, was sold for some crazy amount of money. So the VCs, that's what they wanted to do, is they wanted to um, catch that peak. So they broke up the company.
0: Mm. Yeah, got you. So what happened next, Kevin? Because you've done a lot of other cool stuff since.
1: Yeah. So I went on to – I had written my first book. I went on to write – to start my cool tools website, which um, from the very first day was a blog that made money and still makes money today. Um, So – and I started writing books, more books. Uh, I guess that's mostly – and I did Quantified Self, uh, which was this um, thing with Gary Wolf, who was a Wired writer. We started this movement to you know, to quantify the self, to Fitbit, the whole Tracking Yourself movement, which continues today, although it's, it's not as uh, hyped as it was. And I'm still involved in the Long Now Foundation, which is – building this clock that would tick for 10,000 years in the middle of the mountain in West Texas, which is funded by Jeff Bezos. And I did a graphic novel. I'm doing another photography book on vanishing Asia. So
0: I'm still packaging ideas. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting that piece, how you said, you know, since, you know, any of your ideas, you know, you still treat it like a magazine, you package those ideas. Can you tell, can you elaborate a little more on that for people? So
1: I think pretty visually, um, that was one of the, 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 the what was I am going to say the, the virtues of, uh, one of the attributes of wired was that it was a very visual thing. And, um, I think visually, um, I, I was a photographer first, uh, you know, I, I, I could do art and painting and drawing and stuff. So I think very, very visually. And so, um, when I think about ideas, I, I think of them as kind of a complete package, with uh, like with things on a page or on a screen. You know, I just des- I, I did I designed my own book for Tashin, the the photo book I did for Tashin. I, I designed that and uh, I designed my Cool Tools book, which I republished. I did all the design for that. So so I I, I approach. Uh, ideas is in kind of seeing them as in this media whether it's video or web or book or magazine as kind of a as an artifact as a complete thing so so when we when there's complicated ideas like kind of like my the way my mind works is like what, what would that look like um, h- how, how could you get that onto something that could then transmit itself and, and these big ideas to people, and that's sort of where I just naturally go to. Some people, Warren, but Warren Buffett spends all his time, his cycles, thinking about the valuation of stocks. He just can't help it. That's just, just what he does. You know, does designers walk in and they size a room and they begin to think about the uh, architecture? I was just traveling with a a builder who. The, the thing, he just can't help doing. It. He'd see something, and he'd begin working out well, how would you build that. What, what's that process? We were looking at this huge uh, in Uzbekistan, this huge underground uh, observatory. That was a very complicated thing, and he was like, "How did they? How would I have to make this? What would I? What's the rigging like?" You know, he was just just naturally went in that direction. So my natural direction is just to think about how you would move at and simplified or distilled or communicated in, in in some ways. and that's that's just how my mind works.
0: Mm. yeah, interesting. So one thing that I've found from your work that is quite prolific in my in my views is your concept around thousand true fans. Can you tell us as share of the audience kind of that concept and 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 how that came about? and and why it is so relevant in today's age? The concept,
1: very, very briefly, is this idea that with today's technology, you have the means, or any, any creator has the means for very cheaply to connect with the audience. So whether you're a sculptor, photographer, documentary, painter, author whatever your audience is is you have the means to actually have a connection directly to them at scale meaning as you know as as many as you want um and that um unlike say in in the past when uh like even today it's like a new york publisher the, pe- the people who publish some of my books they have no relationship, no contact, no information about the people who buy the books. You know, it goes through the bookstore. Even the bookstore doesn't have that information. So so they have, you know, hundreds of thousands of people buying the books and they don't know who they are, they don't know anything about them. They don't have direct contact. They don't have their address or names or anything. And um, because of that, you have to have uh, much larger numbers as an author or creator going through this process. But if you have direct contact with your Fans with your audience, then you need much smaller numbers of, of, uh, of support if you get, if you get, you're being paid directly by them directly. So if your fans are paying you directly instead of going through a publisher or studio or label, if they pay you directly, um, you need far less of them to support you. And so you can pick up pick up some numbers, and you can say, well, let's say you could get hundred dollars a year from somebody, you know, let's say a day's wages from a fan. And we'll define a fan, uh, what I call a true fan, is somebody who will literally buy anything that you produce. They 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 just they're a true fan. They'll travel 200 miles to see you sing. They'll come to every opening. They will buy the box set, the paperback, the hardcover. You know, they're, they're true fans. And if you could get a hundred dollars a year from them, they, and if you have a thousand of them, that's a hundred thousand dollars a year. And, you know, for a lot of people, that would be a good living. If you can't get that much from them, maybe you need 2000, but the order of magnitude is in the thousands. It's not a million. You don't need to have a million fans. You don't need to have even half a million fans. you, you, the order of magnitude is, is in the thousands, and so with a thousand, you know, if you added one a, a day, then in a couple of years you'd have a thousand true fans. So not only is is that, but with the potential audience of of, of the entire internet of a couple billion connected even uh, the most obscure interest that you might be producing, even if it had like one in a million, if only one in a million people were interested in it, with several billion people potentially, um, almost any subject that you could possibly imagine will have at least a 1,000 true fans. So that means that for the first time, really almost anything you're interested in you could if you had if you could find and get and that's the big if those fans and have them support you directly you could have support for the most esoteric niche passionate thing that you that you're interested in and that's a great new opportunity it means that you need to shoot for something much smaller than a million. Of course, if you have a million, you go on to it. You're not going to turn them away, and nobody would. And if you have a 1,000 true fans, you still might have another 1,000 occasional fans or semi-fans or just fans, and they can add to the mix. But the point is, is that that works if you have direct contact. And by the way, not every creator is cut out to deal with fans it's 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 certainly a a job a chore Um, and some artists would just they only want to paint or write they don't want to deal with fans and that's fine you can add people but again if you have direct if they're sending you the money directly you still have much smaller numbers necessary even if you have additional people involved than aiming for a million and so that's the thesis of thousand true fans, and I actually first thought of the mathematics about it before there was much evidence that it was happening. It's before there was Kickstarter, before there was. Um, it was a theory more than anything. I said, "Well, this is the theory. Let me see if there's anybody who's actually." living this from the start there were a lot of examples of people who had gotten made their career with book publishers or music labels or something and then left them to go on their own but when i first proposed the idea there was very few people who had actually come up from the bottom and had only ever been supported by the fans but not by now which is like almost 10 years later there are lots of examples of people who have um, actually gained a livelihood by
0: having true fans. Yeah. And look, there's all sorts of tools that support that now, even Patreon. Exactly. So all the crowdfunding from Kickstarter
1: to Indiegogo, Patreon and many others, um, several hundred others, these are all examples of, ways in which you can uh, fund this from your fans.
0: Yeah, this is um, a great concept and something that I thought about. I think it's especially humbling in the early days because it's easy. When you are building a brand, business brand or personal brand, it can be very intimidating when you look to, you know, other companies that have a million Facebook followers or Instagram followers and all these other things, which – mind you are only vanity metrics they don't really represent true fans that would pay for something but right yeah, and, really you know, people...
1: and and the larger those numbers are the, the the higher percentage of bots they are too by the yeah, way 100 percent. so so smaller numbers there's not that many bots but as they get larger a larger portion of them are bots and so you have to discount that when, when looking at those numbers hmm.
0: but it it can be quite intimidating so you know, yeah. I, I I I love this concept because it's so simple and it 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 really is true and and it it can be something that people don't need to be intimidated by when they are starting a brand or a personal mm-hmm. brand or a business because yeah mm-hmm. really if you have a thousand true fans you know paying you a hundred dollars a month um, or hundred sorry a hundred dollars a year on you know on even on a subscription for a software product or whatever it can be extremely lucrative yeah. So, do you operate with a thousand true fans? Hundred percent. Like we would have, we would have more, but yeah, we you know we have have many ways that uh, we've enabled our audience and fans to support our projects. Like we did a we did a Kickstarter campaign. You you might find find this really cool. So, we've been running Founder for about four years now, and. We've interviewed some of the greatest entrepreneurs and founders of our generation, like you know Richard Branson, Ariana Huffington, Seth Godin, and many more. The list goes on. And we started digital um, purely because of you know many of the reasons that you describe that <laughs> a zero sum game is starting a magazine. Uh, but a lot of people like that print product. Um, it it still it it changes the relationship with. With with the person, Kevin, you know, if you compare physical, oh, well, I, well, I know. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I did
1: a I did a paper book mm. from our website after thirteen years, mm. um, because because it's a huge, oversized, weighs almost five pound artifact, and um, there is absolutely something about sitting in front of this big, huge expanse of paper and turning pages that is um, different from clicking through web pages so there's there's no doubt about it the again the economics of it are, are a little tricky um and it uh, sounds like as if you've uh
0: made them work in your favor which is great mm. so yeah look we did a kickstarter campaign bundled it all together create this beautifully designed coffee table book i'd love to send you a copy um it, it i'm very proud of it it's probably one of our best bodies of work but you know crowdfunded through kickstarter you know two and a half thousand fans brought that to life
1: exactly that's 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 perfect we we, i did a kickstarter graphic novel the same thing it was it was this magnificent piece of art um you know almost 500 pages oversized huge gate gated foldouts um and it was kickstarted and we actually did a chinese version too as well so these things work, as you say, they're, they work and people should be inspired by the fact that, um, so many people have got it to use. And, and also I did an analysis of, uh, Kickstarter, the average number of, um, supporters for a successful Kickstarter campaign is like 250, you know, that's even way less than a, than a thousand. So, 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 um. Yeah, it's definitely should be in the toolkit of anybody trying to do this.
0: Yeah, 100%. I think it's one of the best ways to validate a concept as well using crowdfunding. Yeah, right. So look, um, we have to work towards wrapping up, mate. Um, uh, I'm really enjoying this conversation. We could talk all day. Uh, But we have to work towards wrapping up. So I want to move to kind of finishing piece where around the future. I know that uh, you just just, launched, launched a new book not too long ago the inevitable book around technology and and things that are happening talk to us about that like where, where are things going where do like you know we've got we've got you know your, you you this is this is your bread and butter the you know the future web ai like where where do you see things going magazines even like can you talk to us about that? just give us a little bit of an insight of the way you're thinking about things
1: So yeah, I just released the paperback version of The Inevitable, which was a New York Times bestseller, and it's talking about the next 20 to 30 years, mostly in the digital realm. And by far, the most important uh, force, trend, technology in general in in this time frame will be um, artificial intelligence. And there's several things to say about it, but... um, for the purposes of maybe of, of these folks who are listening, it, it, it is that AI, artificial intelligence, is becoming a commodity, or I should say a utility, like electricity. It, it's sort of like more powerful as electricity was to the industrial revolution. It's a, Electricity was kind of distributed on a grid to every, everywhere. You could buy as much as you wanted to. You didn't have to generate it. And this artificial power was a force that enabled people to make skyscrapers and railways and cloth by the mile and shoes by the ton. And we're doing the same thing now with artificial intelligence, which will be distributed on a grid called the cloud and it will become a commodity. And you can buy as much AI as you want. In fact, right this minute, you can purchase. Go on to Google Cloud and buy AI from Google, or you can buy it from Microsoft, IBM, and start playing around with it. Just like the early Industrial Revolution, they had tinkerers playing with electricity in the basements, discovering all kinds of things, imagining new stuff to do with it. And that's what people should be doing now: is just buying AI or working with like a Amazon Alexa app. Just, just. Tinkering with the capabilities because this is going to be getting better and better and better every year. It'll become this very transformative. It's the question you want to ask yourself as a business person, it would be what would you do with a thousand minds? They're not human minds, but a thousand smart minds working on your problem 24 hours a day, seven days a week, what would you do with that power? What could you do with a thousand minds? And so, just as you know in the past, what would you do with 250 horses? The power of 250 horses. Well, you put them in a the car, you'd have a pretty cool car. And so, um, you know that that's what's that's where we're going to. These minds are not human. They're they're very different. They're alien intelligences. They do. They have. They're they're kind of specialized in certain dimensions. Right now, the main thing you can buy is perception, so you can have it recognize images, which is retailing is going to find lots of uses because it can you know, watch it can watch a TV show and identify all the products that are for sale and clothes that people wear, and then you can sell those. Okay, so that's the kind of thing you can do. Um, it can do perception of, of sound. It can understand speech, uh, that's what Lex is doing it can uh understand patterns which is what in the recommendation engines at Netflix and Amazon do so that's available to anybody who wants to buy it and it's cheap 6 cents a hundred hits so that's what's exciting me these days
0: and as a magazine publisher what what should we be thinking about ai should we be concerned worried where would you if yeah if you were at the helm of wide where would you be focusing your attention if you wanted to Ensure that uh, you you guys were staying relevant with AI. Well,
1: there's AI is actually being used in several ways. One is it's actually um, in some newsrooms, not Wired, but some newsrooms they're playing around with the idea of uh, it. It writes. You have AI write these sort of formula stories. It's like, <laughs> wow. The way the way it works is that you know a lot of like sports reporting or financial reporting is very formulaic where it's looking at data and information and writing a story based on previous stories. And they're, they're pretty, they're pretty, they're pretty solid. Um, And so it's not going to be a big cover story, but it can, it can, you know, it's better than nothing. It's, 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 it's better than just a table of of, of, um, charts. It can actually tell you a little bit of a story. And the other place, you know, uh, they're using AI to, to do kind of investigative sourcing where they want to go through large amounts of information, comparing documents to each other, things that just would be really difficult for a human to kind of keep loaded all in your brain when AI can kind of um, help with that. But there are, would be tons of other little experiments that seem kind of trivial and toy-like right now that… Are more playful, but I think that's exactly where you want to be. I I would say that right now there's very little money going to be made from AI. We're not at that stage. This is a stage where you are going to be basically investing into a different mindset, the you know the vocabulary, the sensibility, the skills that are necessary. It's kind of like the early days of the internet where not that many people were making money but the ones who you know like amazon were continually investing into it became the giants and so you have to kind of be a little bit more research oriented a
0: little bit more um experimental in that sense yeah no that's interesting i i love the way you think about things awesome well look um Last question, Kevin. Uh, where's the best place people can find out more about your work? You know, 1,000 True Fans book, inevitable book, or, you know, cool tools, everything you're going on.
1: Yeah, I have a website with my initials, kk.org, Kevin2, two, number2kelly two, on Twitter, but um, besides cool tools, which does link from kk.org, which we do uh, a user-generated uh, review of a cool tool, just about every day, tool in the broadest sense from a hand tool to an app to um, a map, uh, a kitchen utensil, whatever, its anything that's useful. But we also have something really rec- – besides, we have a podcast, a weekly podcast on – we interview somebody that's interesting, and they tell us their four favorite tools. But the most recent thing for the past year is we have something called Recommendo, With one M, recommendo.com. And uh, we send out, uh, Mark and Foynfeller and I and Claudia send out uh, six very brief recommendations of good stuff. Not just tools, but, you know, things that we're watching, podcasts that we're listening to, uh, destinations that we're going to, tips, you know, just cool stuff. Very, very brief, one page. And uh, we send it out every Sunday. So, recommendo.com.
0: Awesome. Fantastic. Well, look, uh, thank you so much for your time, Kevin. I really appreciate it. It's a great conversation.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it.
0: Hey, guys. I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business